Welcome to the Adorned Women Podcast. Our goal is to inspire you with new stories each week featuring women of faith from all over the world, both past and present, and we want to introduce you to them. Through weekly discussions with each sister in Christ, we hope to give you a glimpse into who they are and how their lives have been transformed by the gospel. We are all in this journey together, so let's be inspired together. Hi everyone, I'm Michaela, your host, and I'm so glad you've joined us for another episode of the Adorned Women podcast. This week, our guest is Jenna Schottmeyer, author of Are You Drowning? Overcoming in the Midst of Trauma and Loss, published in October 2021. Jenna is a New England-based writer, speaker, and artist. Ever since she was a child, Jenna took frequent trips to the New Jersey shore, and spending time at the ocean gave her a lens to understand her own ups and downs. Now, nearly 10 years after the accident that changed the trajectory of her life, she is passionate about helping others find their true identity, worth, purpose, hope, and freedom like she found in Christ. Alicia and I really enjoyed getting to know Jenna this week, and we hope you do too. I'm your host, Michaela Cardi, and I'm here with my co-host, my sister-in-law, Alicia. Hello. And we are also here with Jenna Schottmeyer. We are so excited to have you, Jenna. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are so excited. We've heard a lot about you and your story and your book as well. But first, we just kind of want to get to know you a little bit. We heard you love coffee, and I am not necessarily a big coffee drinker, but Michaela is. I am. Really? Why don't you drink coffee? That's always the question everyone probably asks you, right? (laughs) Well, I do drink it. I actually didn't until college. I started drinking it in college because it forced my hand. (laughs) But I I drink it kind of just, you know, maybe a cup here or there. It just, for me, the flavor was never great. It was, the flavor was tough. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I think my mom turned me on to it in high school. She's a big coffee drinker. Uh She would say, I would get up and be really groggy and she'd be like, just a few sips, just take a few sips and you'll feel so much better. And now, of course, the addiction has fully set in and I just love everything about it. Yeah, I started my addiction (laughs) in high school, too. (laughs) What's the best? um, Do you do you like to drink your coffee like from a coffee shop or do you like to make your own coffee? Yeah, I kind of go through different phases, but I think I like getting it out. I think I like the variety. I think if I could go to a different coffee shop every day, I totally would. Yeah. (laughs) But of course, like, that would be crazy on the budget. And, you know, I don't (laughs) live in the middle of Manhattan where you could probably do that every day. Sure. (laughs) But what about you? I, one of my favorite gifts that I got on our registry when I got married in July was an espresso machine. So I make my own lattes like every morning. That's amazing. (laughs) One of my friends made me a latte from her Nespresso machine and it was so good. So Mm -hmm. that's like awesome. And I I get my beans from a coffee shop that I really like in the town that I live in. So it feels like I'm drinking coffee from there. (laughs) Oh, also, of course, I was just like Instagram stalking you looking at your Instagram. Your wedding was just beautiful. (laughs) I loved looking at those pictures so much. Thank you. Was Was it so fun to plan? It was not the plan. So that was in my backyard. Wow. Which is crazy. That was in your backyard? Yeah, my parents. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be at a venue. And then three weeks before, like the venue, like 
So I was from Bergen County, New Jersey, which was the epicenter of coronavirus <laughs> in March of 2020. And so, um, but by the time July came, like the wave had already hit. Like people were still getting sick, but like people weren't, or at least the first wave, right? There was like a few now. Um, but um, yeah, so our venue was like, we're going to have it. It's going to be great. And then three weeks before the venue was like, we can't have it. And so we were like, oh my gosh, so like backyard wedding. And so we um, had an engagement party and it was not nearly as formal as the wedding, but we had had it in my backyard the year before. And so we called us the same caterer people and we're like, engagement party, but like <laughs> so much more formal. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I bet that was like, so stressful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like a week before we had no idea if it was going to come together. Wow. And like my dad and my husband were like mapping out square footage, but we like had to uninvite like more than half the people. And they were like talking about square footage per person to make sure that if people could be social distanced, even though the whole thing's outside and it was like a whole thing. Meanwhile, my mom and I were like black and white dance floor, ice sculpture. I all this random stuff because we were in quarantine at that time. And like, it's still like unbelievable that it actually came together because we had no idea. We just kind of, threw out a bunch of random ideas to the caterer the floor said that there was no way that she was going to get any flowers in by july and then i don't know she just kept coming to the house with flowers and we were like okay i guess the supplies back here but yeah it was like really funny the stress and like the minimalism that we was going on before the wedding did not come out at all in the actual wedding. oh well that's good but, <laughs> yeah um Something I noticed on your Instagram is you share a little bit of your art. I would love to hear a little bit about that. I loved scrolling through those pictures and looking at all of your adorable art. Yeah, they're so cute. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I got into it while I was home from an accident that we'll get into later. But my brother actually had a bout of cancer and he was sent home from college as well. And we we're on the couch and <laughs> we decided to, we really wanted to connect with people. We really wanted to reach out and be able to have some kind of community with others and stuff. And we thought that a way that we could really connect and, and get to know other people was through starting a company. So in 2015, we started Jay Schottmeyer and it's kind of grown and evolved in different ways. You know, we started with ties and stuff, which my brother did, and we did some clothing and everything. But for me, it was always about the artwork. I was completely math-oriented before the accident, and then I kind of turned into an artist, just of how, you know, the way my brain worked and stuff. And so, yeah, I'm a watercolor artist. I see life kind of in waves and watercolor. Yeah, I love it. I love that so much. Yeah, I love that you translate your perspective, just how you see life into that. Yeah, I think I just, I don't know, I had such a, um, such a full circle way of viewing life differently um, after the accident and everything that I kind of can't help but just see life in such a different way than I used to and wind up kind of sharing that everywhere I go with everyone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that that's a major part of your life story, just this incident that you were in when you were 18. 
And you actually just released a book that you wrote about this. Um, But for our listeners who haven't heard it yet, could you share some of that story with us? Yes, absolutely. So this story starts in 2013. And there are a few things to understand about 18-year-old me at the time. Um, I loved math. I wanted to be an accountant since I was in the fourth grade. And I really prided myself in hard work. I thought that, you know, circumstances can take anything and everything away from me, but I would always have my mind and mental capacity and my work ethic. And so I was building a life of my version of excellence. And it was like with God and for God. I was a freshman in college on academic scholarship and had just made the tennis team. And then I went to a party on campus uh, three weeks in and someone hit me on the head with a water cooler. It was speculated to have come from the balcony. The person went to pour the water off the balcony, but it slipped and the whole thing fell on my head. Um, I was knocked out and I had a concussion and two contusions. I had to come home from school and it wasn't until about a year later that I was being diagnosed as someone who had a lifelong injury. I had a traumatic brain injury. I couldn't read. I didn't drive. I had forgotten most of my recent memory at the time, which was high school, and struggled with my short-term memory. My mind would reset. I wouldn't know, you know who I was talking to or what we were talking about, et cetera. And I guess at the time, all of that, those symptoms and things kind of seemed secondary to the fact that I was throwing up and falling down just about every day because I was so dizzy. You know, it was a year after the accident that I really had to process the injury and situation very differently. Um, I would no longer be worthless and all the other harsh things that I told myself for a portion of time, but it was going to be my lifetime. And at that point, I really hit rock bottom. I was in physical therapy, vestibular therapy, vision therapy, but what really got me was that I was in cognitive therapy. You know, I was mortified that the thing I had built that I was most proud of, you know, my mind was taken from me or specifically two specific pieces of my mind were taken from me, which were the contusions. Uh, At that point, I thought that God was disappointed in me and I felt like I had failed him because I could no longer do the things that I used to. But, you know, I realized over time that God didn't want the things that I could do. He really just wanted me. I knew that God loved me. And I had heard testimony of people who had broken lives and God turned them around, but I didn't see that in the darkness of that time in my life. And I kind of had a choice to make, you know, was I going to let the lies of the enemy, was I going to let the lies of the enemy was telling me uh, sink in or was I going to choose God and like, instead of the path that I wanted more than anything. And, um, Yeah, I gave the full send to God and said, okay, I don't understand how you could love me, but I know that you do. And I don't understand how to have hope, but I do know that it's found in you. And I don't know how to have peace, but and I do not have any peace at all, but I know that you are the Prince of Peace. And yeah, for five years after the accident, my physical ability didn't change. But my faith kept growing to overflow. And that's why I wrote the book. 
you know, God does not promise an easy road for us, but he really does like restore our souls. <laughs> like I know that um, I grew up as a Christian. I asked the Lord into my heart when I was five years old. You know, I really loved him my whole life. And now I just feel like all the songs we say in church and all the different things, I like just want to shout it from the rooftop. Like it's all real. <laughs> like it's seriously real. And so yeah, I started living a life that had nothing to do with my earthly resume anymore, but it was okay because I was building a resume of faith like that. And he was 12 and then, um, kind of rounding out the story, flash forward three years ago, five years after the accident, God totally provided a miracle to my physical body and the healing process. And, um, that's sort of where the book leaves off and here we are now. <laughs> wow. What I think is incredible about that story is that it's not like the healing is, I think, a big part of it. I mean, obviously, that is a huge miracle, and that is an incredible part of the story. But I feel like so much of what you learned and so much of your faith was developed and was still going to be there, regardless of whether there was healing or not. Yeah, and I think that that's the cry of my heart in sharing the story. You know, that's why most of the book is about the interim part, <laughs> you know, where I would go to a doctor and they would say, you know, how can you possibly have hope? And I would tell him, okay, well, I don't know why you just asked me that. Aren't you supposed to tell me? But, <laughs> you know, like I can tell you that I have hope because of Jesus. And I think that that's a promise of God that he can transform our hearts. And like as Christians, that's what we believe that he can do. And that's why he asked us to ask him into our hearts. And so that's like the thing that I just want to reach out and tell people so much, just even through like the fact that I am doing so much, so much better physically, you know, like I'm healed, I'm restored. It's incredible. But um, I don't know, there's something so powerful about that interim part. And I think that people don't talk about that as much. Like you want to hear the mountaintop stuff. And I want to hear the mountaintop stuff and I want to live the mountaintop stuff. But then we also have to live on rainy Tuesdays, you know? Yeah. How, how long was that time period before you were kind of fully healed or restored? The timeline kind of goes, the accident happened. It was a year after the accident that I hit rock bottom, four years of living, restored by God, but physically not. And then it was five years after the accident that I was healed. Wow. So that was just multiple years of just struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And we thought it was going to be a life sentence. You know, I think um, I always thought that God could heal me. And I struggled through a lot of those questions, you know, and feeling like I was falling, crying, literally crying out to God, asking him to heal me and feeling like he passed me by. And the only thing that I can say is that it also felt like as I was screaming that and he was passing me by, like he also had his arm around me, you know, crying with me. And um, I don't know, I definitely did not, I definitely always knew that he could heal me, but I had to live in the day to day that I'm not healed today. So if I'm living my life that, he's going to heal me, then it kind of took a lot of the purposes out of 
that day that I was in, it kind of made like the day I was in kind of feel worthless. So we kind of had to find a balance between praying for the miracle, living in the now and working with what we got. (laughs) Wow. I think we'd love to hear about some of just what you were able to build, what God was able to build in you during that time. I know you've shared a little bit about strength and what that means. Um, I've heard you say you used to think strength was um, just having a dream or a goal and holding onto it and never, ever letting it go. But you found this new realization that it actually may take more strength not to give up on yourself than not to give up on your dreams. Um, So I would love to hear just what brought you to that conclusion? When did that happen? Yeah. So when I was talking about hitting rock bottom a year after the accident, I kind of realized that the road of achievement that I was on was going to lead to death. You know, that road said, you know, it was a road that I had built, a narrative that I had built, but it said that if you can't become sort of like any kind of sort of finance or accounting person, you're not worthy anymore. And that was the motivation that I had that pushed me so hard. I had like a value system, the value rank partially instilled in me by my environment and partially by my just own insecurities. And I didn't know it was a path to death until my physical abilities were gone. You know, in the book, I have a quote from chapter nine and it says, um, I think this is what you were talking about. Yes, it's the mentality exuded by so many successful athletes and business people at the apex of their careers said, never give up on your dreams and hard work beats talent if talent doesn't work hard. But this was literally killing me. And since I was now unable to attain those dreams, I was the villain of my story, or at least my symptoms were. But I had to redefine the villain and reset good versus evil. The Bible tells us that there is a real evil out in the world And I am not the one to blame for my suffering, which is found in John 9, 1 through 4. I didn't say a verse. It's just kind of where I got that thought from, by the way. (laughs) Um, I am not the true villain because I had an accident. If that were true, I should get rid of the villain and be done with it. The accident wasn't the true villain either. The villain was the creator of the lies that I had believed, the father of lies. It's the one who whispered in my ear as I laid in bed, saying that it would be better off that I was dead than alive. It was the one who wants to cause me further harm. So I think that I kind of had to get to the root of it um, and the root of what I thought strength was because I thought strength meant hard work. And at that point, my body was so weak that hard work meant getting out of bed when the room was spinning and spinning and spinning crawl or I didn't always crawl it wasn't always that bad but like you know walk to the bathroom and then like go downstairs go to a doctor come home and sleep for three hours and that was the most that my body could do so I had to redefine my value system and I had to redefine everything and like like I said before I thought like I knew I had insecurities I knew that you know, maybe my value system was like a little bit screwed, but I was a Christian and I didn't think that I had this skewed way of seeing the world. And so I really had to sit there with God and say, okay, like you need to redefine every aspect I see of life. And 
um, it took a lot of humbling to be able to do that. But yeah, so I think that, you know, the power of God pales in comparison to anything I ever did. But choosing life was definitely the bravest thing that 19-year-old me could have ever done. You know, stepping away from the comments of other people and the comparison that people did, which I do talk about a little bit in the book and make sure that, you know, people who read it won't know that it was them who said the quote (laughs) and things like that. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, when I said that it may take more strength not to give up on yourself than to give up on your dreams, what I really meant by that is that we think that God looks at us for our strengths, or at least I thought that God did. So whether you're an athlete or you're an author or you're a business person or whatever you are, like so many times we think that God is going to use us in that place. And then when we're faced with transition and we're faced with hard things it's just harder and harder to see god in those things but um god just wants us you know god just wants us to be vessels just filled with him i think that's really powerful especially for performance-driven societies performance-driven individuals i know i struggle with that i'm sure michaela is a former athlete as well we both understand that that mindset and i think that's a pretty powerful message that um, it's it's God's strength, and what we have pales in comparison to that. So I, I think that's a pretty powerful message. Yeah, absolutely. And Jenna, you've just talked a little bit about um, just as you had to face the reality of evil in your life and just hitting rock bottom and having to know that your only hope was going to be the Lord. Was there any specific verses that you clung to just day to day, or passages of scripture specifically that you use to combat these lies of the enemy in in your life? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think a great example, you know, in talking about identity, I had all these labels and I asked the Lord, okay, God, I need different labels because right now I am nothing. And so I thought that God was going to give me, you know, 10 to 15 new labels and maybe it was going to be worthy, loved, um, you know, whatever, like all this different stuff. And I felt like he gave me child of God. And I said, okay. And, and I was just waiting for that. And because I just wanted more and I just felt like that was it. And so I told myself, okay, you know, give it some time. He'll give me some more, but right now it's just that one label. And since then it's just kind of been that one label. So there's like a million verses and passages of scripture, but one that I really, really love is found in First Samuel 17. And so this is David and Goliath. And so I have this theory about David and Goliath that David was the one to take down Goliath because he had his identity set on the Lord. And there was so many other soldiers who could have taken down Goliath if their identity was set in the Lord. But I want you to hear this a minute. So 1 Samuel 17, verses 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you are not the servants of Saul? Choose a man to have him come down and fight me. And then when you go down to the same chapter, 1 Samuel 17. So what happens is, 
no one wants to fight Goliath because he's too big and too great and all the things. And all of the people fighting for Israel are just like so scared. And then David comes and he's not even in the army. He's just like a random shepherd and his brothers are in the army and he is prepared to fight the Philistine. And he says this, 1 Samuel 17, verse 37. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And what I think happens here is that Goliath is screaming out to the people, you are just servants of Saul. And he is telling them that he is this great Philistine and they're servants of Saul. David comes and says, you know, the Lord will rescue me. And so the amazing thing about the identity of being a child of God is that we don't have to come to terms with who we are. We don't have to come to terms with my own strength and my own ability and what I can actually do, but we can realize that God will work in our lives, in us, when we have obedience. And I think that we still, or at least I, always, always thought that that meant more accomplishment, you know? If that was like, you were able to talk to more people and were able to produce more things and you're able to get more accolades. But I don't know, as I've grown and learned more about God, I've at least realized in my own life that I think that God is much more focused on my obedience than my actions. And it's through obedience and it's through knowing that it doesn't have to come from my strength, that we can just kind of lead one foot in front of the other and move forward in that. So that's one of my favorite passages. I think, as you can see, well, really Old Testament and New Testament, the whole Bible, you see that these people are wildly unequipped for what God wants them to do, how God equips them. And these amazing stories really have this identity of just being a child of God before they are whatever else they are. It's just such an amazing common theme that you can start to read in every person who followed God in the Bible. Yeah, for your life to be summed up in Christ and just to know yourself as a child of God first, was that a difficult place to get to? Did that take time for you? Oh, it definitely took a lot of time, Yeah, especially in college, because you're constantly asked where you go to school, what you want to do, what your job is going to be after school. I mean, maybe you do this your whole life, but it just kind of seems like the random person who's, you know, this middle-aged person, the scrutiny on all that isn't nearly as big, but it just kind of seems like that age group, that like 18 to 23, it's just constant. So everywhere you go, whether the people know you, whether the people don't know you, it's just constant questioning. And I absolutely handled it so wrong so many times. You know, I even, I, I think this made it into the book actually, but I went to anthropology one time after the accident and the woman was like, oh, wow, are you home from school? Where do you go? And I was like, oh. I started like bawling, crying. And, um, you know, that was totally, oh man, that poor woman. But <laughs> like, yeah, I was devastated. And then I think 
I think that label of child of God grew and grew and grew and it took, it just took trust. Like it just took trust in really small moments. It took trust when I was laying in bed and I couldn't get out of bed because the room was spinning too much. And it just like took little tiny moments of saying, okay, God, what do you have for me right now? And sometimes I would feel like someone's name would kind of flash into my mind and I'd begin to pray for them. And like, I think there was so much obedience and identity being in child of God and purpose in those kinds of moments. And then it just kind of grew like little by little, but exponentially over time to where I was able to be confident in that being my only label. Yeah, it definitely took a while. You talk about purpose right there. And I love that we we touched on that because that's the next thing I wanted to ask. I've heard you talk about how you also had to relearn the idea of purpose and reshape that a little bit, going from my whole life has one purpose to maybe there's a million little purposes throughout my life. I'd love to hear you share a little bit about how that began to take shape. I'm sure it, it came alongside learning to find your identity in child of God, um, but also could you share some examples of, you know, what, what are some of those tiny million purposes that you have? Yeah, so I love to share, like I just talked about with prayer. Um, a lot of times, you know, I couldn't, a lot of the accident kind of manifested itself in my vision, and that's why I had so many of the difficulties I had. So it would kind of be muscle memory that I would text somebody and say that I was praying for them, and it would really be like very pivotal times in their lives and just kind of, I don't know, really, really cool things. So it felt like, it felt like nothing when your value system is kind of based on accomplishment. You've been in bed for six hours in the middle of the day and you just kind of like start to pray. But yeah, I think that there's like, I don't know. I think when we're walking in obedience, there's a million tiny purposes. One purpose that I haven't really ever talked about or at least publicly, but I just kind of was processing yesterday was actually my relationship with my little sister. So she is six years younger than me and she's just like the most unbelievable person in the whole world. And no one can tell me otherwise. (laughs) She's like, just so like beautiful and kind hearted and the best person ever. But yeah, she's six years younger than me and she is a natural born leader. And so it was, I think, I think it was hard to find as many things in common with an 11-year-old who's a natural-born leader when you're 17 and have your whole life figured out. And that's kind of where we were before I went off to college. You know, I think we got along. Like, I, I think we were close. But it was very, very different when I had to come home and I needed the help of a 12-year-old. You know, I needed I needed her. And um yeah, the purposes that I would have deemed tiny at the time were the chocolate chip cookie baking and the laying on the couch and, of course, the Hannah Montana reruns. <laughs> and it was that idle time that was easy to feel like wasted time. You know, the time that I could have been at the college I wanted to be at because I eventually started taking like one or two classes at a time at a local college but I had to give up the dream of like my dream school. And so, you know, I could have been growing my career at an internship and I could have been doing all of these things. And so this idle time of just kind of being with my sister just 
felt really tiny. Like it just felt like there wasn't purpose in it, you know, and we're trying to convince my parents to get pizza instead of have whatever we had for dinner last night. <laughs> like just kind of silly things like that. But now I can look back and see that, you know, my brother is one year older than me. And so I kind of got to grow up with my brother as a kid. And then I got to grow up with my sister while I was supposed to be in college. And we are so close. You know, she is one of my absolute best friends. And now that I'm married and, um, you know, she's, she's away at school. Like we just have this amazing bond that I can't imagine we would have had if we didn't have all that idle time together. And so I think that being content with baking chocolate chip cookies and watching Hannah Montana on a Friday night um, actually really took a lot of obedience, as you know, when you're 20 years old. But um, I don't know. I think really seeking contentment through prayer with the Lord and really seeking obedience, there's just so much purpose that comes out of it. And so I'm just so, so, so thankful for that. Yeah, I think it's so easy for us to also just get so wrapped up in like what the next big thing is going to be. Um, but it mm-hmm. sounds like you've gotten to really learn what it's like to just live so present in the moment. I <laughs> I know that for me, like it's easy to like when I was in high school, I was looking ahead to where I'm going to go to college. And then I made it to college and I was looking ahead to when I was going to get married. And now I'm married and now I'm looking ahead to where me and my husband are going to live once we graduate. And that's just not the way that God intends us to live life. He intends us to live in the here and now in what he wants us to do today. Yeah, it's so easy to look forward. I find that so, so, so often. I think looking forward or looking back held a lot of fear for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like who I was or who I was going to be. But finding those present times and the present moment that you're in and being just thankful for whatever is in that moment, I think it's just so freeing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm, I'm now wondering, you know, you're a little bit removed from that time in your life now. One of the things I was curious about is obviously you just wrote this whole book. You've learned all these powerful lessons and been shaped so powerfully by God throughout this experience. Um, Do you still struggle? And that's a silly question up front, but I'm wondering, you know, do you still find yourself caught up in some of the things you struggled with during that time? Or do you think you've moved on and now there's kind of a new phase, um, some new challenges that you face um, in your faith and in your life? Uh, what, what has that been like recently? <laughs> yeah, that's so funny you say that. Sometimes I'll be talking about something and my husband will be like, you know, there's this book you should really read. It like talks about all of these topics and I think that you would really enjoy it. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. What is it? And he'll be like, are you serious? Like I'm talking about your book, like go <laughs> read your own thing that you're trying to tell people. <laughs> and I'm like, dang it. You're so right. Um, yeah. I think, um, I think I definitely still find my myself in times where I feel like I'm not good enough, or I struggle. I think in general, if you think about it this way, the person who's constantly posting about how people should have confidence is probably a person that needs to constantly hear it themselves. Uh, <laughs> and so it's kind of amazing, you know, comments from strangers and friends can really throw off 
my confidence, but like, it doesn't make me cry anymore. If that makes sense. Um, I think there's an awkwardness about only having the label child of God. And so now on an earthly scale, you know, like I'm an artist or an author and like I speak to people and encourage people and everything. But in my mind, like those aren't enough to hold the weight that I want them to hold on my resume. And so now, even though like I have my life together in the world's eyes and I'm doing well, and you know, I could, I could barely read before. And now I'm like plowing through all sorts of books and I wrote a book and I graduated and I have like all this different stuff, but my, my earthly resume like doesn't hold the weight that I need it to. And so when I become self-focused, it all falls apart. You know, when I become self-focused, I'm like, why am I sharing this about myself? Like, why would I ever tell people this deep, dark, embarrassing stuff about my life? And why am I doing any of this? I start to like go down this road that just feels like it's all about me. And, you know, like if my husband um, could like come home from work and like I'm already like cocooned like somewhere under a blanket and I'll just be like, I just don't, I don't like it all about me. I just don't, it doesn't feel right. Um, everything. But then I really have to remind myself of those truths and remind myself that I'm a child of God and really step back into that place. And then sharing what happened to me just becomes a way to evangelize. And like, I think that I just want so badly for people to understand how real and true God is and how I didn't want to be all the things that I am now. Like I wanted to be an accountant. <laughs> like As much as people don't necessarily understand that, it's what I liked, it's what I wanted, it's where I want to be uh, or I wanted to be. But um, yeah, it's like the sacrifice of stepping into that child of God label to share the story that God has asked me to share. But it's so powerful and it's so amazing. And it's so much, it's filled with so much more purpose than um, I could have ever imagined to be able to walk in this and share it. But I absolutely still have moments of struggle. Like it's not a daily struggle. Sometimes it's not a weekly struggle, but it's definitely a monthly struggle, if that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you so much for your just your realness and your honesty in that. I just uh, want to take a moment just to wrap up our conversation. I'd love to talk about something I've heard you mention before, just the awkwardness of blind faith in a world that expects you to always have a plan and always have a goal. Awkward is the perfect word for it, really, because that's sometimes exactly how it feels when you're fully depending on God and living as the Holy Spirit leads. But that's what it is to follow Christ. Could you just share briefly how God has led you one step at a time in the past, but also how he's leading you one step at a time today? Yeah, totally. So hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So I think it's easy to look back and see when I graduated college, I, I was healed and I graduated college and I started working for a marketing firm. And then I was let go due to some restructuring and everything and went back to my desk and took a deep breath and welled up with tears and said, okay, God, what's my next step? And this woman who had reached out to 
um, you know, I've tried to figure out, okay, how do I write a book? I've never written a book. Like what in the world? And this woman who I would reached out to, it was probably about a month, finally got back to me right at my desk at that moment. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm leaving this job and writing the book. <laughs> so like, I think that you can look back and kind of see how one small step led to the next, which led to the next, which led to the next, you know, that woman led me to this agent and that agent led me to that editor and that editor. Then I found this other one. And then it was just kind of grew and formed over the course of two years. But when I started on that path, I had absolutely no idea how that was going to happen. And, and that's just the book. I mean, we could talk all day about that on, you know, the scale of life. Uh, um, it really reminds me of Genesis 12. Let's see. It's the call of Abraham. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And what I think is so interesting about that is that he doesn't tell him where he's going to go. He just says, go to the land that I will show you. And I think that it's so awkward, like you said, like awkward is such a good word. Like it's awkward to step into that and say, okay, I only have step one. And I don't even know if this step one is going to lead to what I think the end result is. But I know that obedience is taking step one and realizing that, I mean, I didn't, at, when I was writing the book, I'll just go with this example. When I was writing the book for months, I was thinking, maybe this isn't even going to become something I share with other people. Maybe this is just something that I need to learn for my own self. And then from there, God's going to bring me to a different revelation. And then in that revelation, he'll lead me to something else. And then in that revelation, there will be something else. And so like, that's sort of how I really try to live my life. You know, like having ideas of things that I want to do and dreams of things I want to do kind of loom in the background or like at the top, but not really, um, not really necessarily finding every single step that's going to lead to that, but saying like, okay, God is asking me to take this next step. I'm positive. This is the next step. It will potentially lead to that thing I can see over there, but like I'm taking this step and he's going to show me how to get there or the path is going to go into a different direction. Um, it's so awkward. I mean, I live in the Northeast. I grew up outside of New York City. I now live outside of Boston. And Northeasterners are obsessed with five-year plans. <laughs> it's just a thing. We love it. You know, for business, for family, for friendships, relationships, like everyone is all about the five-year plans. And um, yeah, I just don't think that that's what God is asking me to do. I don't know if maybe he'll give me grace and I would love to have a five-year plan at some point in the future, but <laughs> I don't know. I think that um, it's awkward, but it's also just so fulfilling. You know, I love that Abraham, or Abraham is called the father of our faith. And so we can really rest assured that when God asks us to take a step and either we know where it's going to lead or we don't know where it's going to lead that we can walk in that in confidence because God literally singles out 
this time in Genesis 12 as just such an example for us to all live by. I love that. And I love that you bring in Genesis 12, 1. I think even for me personally, that's been um, a big verse in my life and just learning to live that way where you can't, you know, you have, you have some ideas of what the outcome could be, but you're holding it with a loose grip and it's never guaranteed. It's never certain, but you're really just living out of faith. I love that. And I think that if the church truly embraced that way of living and truly embraced the mindset that we are going into the land God is showing us every day and there's no no guaranteed outcome that um, it would just be crazy to watch. So I love that you shared that. I think it would be a lot easier maybe if we all start living this way, then we won't hear as many comments of people yeah. <laughs> saying things like, I don't know. I just think it's it's really hard when you're trying to live that way and then you still have so many influences that and not from like close family or friends but there's just like always I don't know there's always a naysayer and also this just made me think like it's just oftentimes in our awkwardness and weakness and uncertainty that God is glorified the most but it just it just requires our obedience and understanding that I'm a child of God first and that's what matters most absolutely yeah as we finish up here, I, I have two questions for you. First, where can our listeners find you um, on social media or wherever else? And then what can we be praying for you for? Yeah, so on social media, um, you can find me at Jenna Shop, J-E-N-N-A-S-H-O-T-S. And that's kind of my personal page where I share a lot of faith and everything. And then for yeah, anything artistic and like the business side of things, um, is all on Jay Schottmeyer, which is just J-S-H-O-T-M-E-Y-E-R, which is also my website, jschottmeyer.com. Um, yeah, what can you guys be praying for me for? I think just continued relationship with the Lord and obedience and walking in this identity. I think when my body was so debilitated, like it was such a harder way to live but I had to grasp onto these (laughs) these like nuggets of truth so 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 hard and so now that I'm sort of living like a normal human being I just want to keep growing I want to keep growing and understanding and in more and more truth and just be able to continue to do whatever it is that the Lord wants me to do. Thank you so much, Jenna. We've just loved getting to know you a little more and hear about your story. And I just really want to express um, just my gratitude for how real and honest and open you are. I think that the Lord is just going to continue to use you and your story to touch others and um, hopefully use it as a way for you to continue to evangelize to others so that they can hear the gospel and know that they can find hope in God even when things are really hard. Yeah, thank you so much, Jenna. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Adorned Women podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard here, then follow us on our Instagram for even more great content all week long. Our handle is at Adorned Women. You can also visit our website at www.adornedwomen.com. And of course, join us again next week as we connect with another sister in Christ and learn so much from her life of faith. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.